Well, I'm, I'm kind of excited with all the, the decorations are up and, and all the Christmas carols that we sang together. I feel like we need to now turn to Luke chapter 2 or someplace else and begin the, the nativity story. And yet, I find myself going back to Haggai chapter 2. But actually, we're pretty close to on schedule. Because the message, now, to remind you of what we're up to, the book of Haggai is a short book. It's one of the shortest prophets, only two chapters, and those chapters contain four messages, four specific and dated messages from the Lord to his people concerning the building up of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the message we're actually looking at this morning, the third in the series of four, is actually originally given on December 18th, 520 B.C. So December 18th, that means we're only a couple weeks off, right? We're actually pretty close to the calendar here. So this, I guess, in some ways is going to work out to be a Christmas message after all. So the, the, these, these series of messages, as I said, God is speaking to his people about the rebuilding of the temple following the Babylonian captivity. Now, God has specifically, after 70 years, he specifically brought them back. He raised up a king to send these people back to Jerusalem specifically to build his temple. That there they might sacrifice, that there they might worship, that there they might pray. And God has provided the things that they would need for doing that. He's provided the resources. He's given them an expense account on Cyrus's tab. And they go and they, they make some initial starts. But unfortunately, not unlike us, they're easily distracted. And they move from what God had sent them to do to what's in front of them to do. And there are other things. There's, there's obstacles in the way. There's difficulties at hand. And in the face of those difficulties, there's alternatives that they can turn to. There's other stuff that needs doing. There's own fields to plow. There's our own houses to build. There's other things to look after. And maybe... Maybe it's not yet the time to build. That's the first message. The first message confronts that myth that maybe it's just not the right time. Maybe later I'll do what the Lord has set before me. But God answers that. It's always time to do what God has said, let's do. It's always the right time to do what God has said to do. Myth number two. The second message confronts the notion that, well, we can't really do much, so why bother? The little that I could do isn't going to make much of a difference. How do we know? The answer to that second myth or second obstacle is it's all in how you frame it. From what perspective do you look at what difference might you make? Now, God's perspective on the matter is the truest of all. So when you think, what do I frame it? From what I see or from what God says? We, we look at it from what God says because God's perspective is always truest. And God has said, this little that you are building, don't be discouraged by the size of it and compared to what used to be because the glory of this temple is going to be far greater than the previous because this little temple that they build, in fact, Herod's going to get his hands all over it and muddy it all up, and yet still the glory of that temple is going to be even greater. Why? Because the glory of God in Jesus Christ himself is going to show up there. God is going to show up right in the midst of that temple in humanity. My. Now, now in, the, in the nativity, that happens. 
At the, at, the, at the eighth day, don't they bring the, the, the child to the temple? And there a sacrifice is offered for, for his mother concerning his birth. And it's a, it's a poor sacrifice, a, a sacrifice that a poor family would offer. But Jesus, even as an infant, shows up at that temple. But he'll be back. He'll be back at the week of his crucifixion when there he dies for the sin of humanity Sure, the glory of that temple, as small as it seems to them at the time, in the outline of the foundation stones that they've laid, it seems like it's not going to be much at all, but it's going to be much because Jesus himself is going to show up in the midst of it. And that's where he, he gives the value in our temple building as well. Remember, we've been having an analogy between Haggai building a temple and God's people today building a temple. And it's two different kinds of building. They were building a, a, a physical building in which they would worship God. Where we are building, what God says today, that the church, the body of Christ, these, this people redeemed and gathered together, that you are a temple of the living God. That God is in our midst. That we are to build up this temple. He says, let each one be careful how they build. So there's an analogy going on between building a structure and Paul teases out in Ephesians to this temple that he continues to build up and finish and complete called his church. Not the structure, but the people. So we are building. In fact, I've said that the great commission to, go, to make disciples is a temple building commission, right? Our commission is a temple building commission. It's a worshipful commission that we are to make disciples. We are to build this temple that Christ said he would build his church and not even the gates of hell would prevail against it. And we build that temple by going out after, by bringing others into God's temple, into God's family, and by building up one another in following Jesus. Going out, bringing in, building up. Those are the steps we have in building this temple. And the same things that helped them build in Haggai's day are the things that help us build. The same things that get in the way of building in Haggai's day are the same things that get in the way of building the temple today. That's why we're spending a little time, a couple of weeks, considering Haggai and the building of the temple, the building up God's house. Now today we come to the third myth, the third obstacle in the way, and that is simply this. Someone else could do it better. I would just mess it up. When it comes to temple building, and we're, we're not stonemasons, we are sent to people. So when it comes to going out after people, I'm just not that good at that. When it comes to inviting others in, sharing the gospel with somebody, helping somebody come to faith in Christ... Somebody else will be better at that than I would. When it comes to building up somebody in their faith, helping them take next steps in following Jesus, well, surely somebody else knows more. Somebody else could do that better than I could. I can't do much. Who am I to do that kind of thing in the building of God's temple? I would just mess it up. How would God use me? That's what we come because there's the problem with that objective is there's something to it. And you know it. You know there's something to the notion that there's things in you that probably make you unfit for such a glorious work as building an eternal temple to the true and the living God. Who am I for something like that? Really? There's something to it. And yet there's not. 
And that's what we're going to look at today. We're gonna, as, as, we, as, we, as we look at the second half of Haggai chapter 2, we're going to first of all come to a parable, an analogy, the um, question of infection, I'll call it. And then from there, we're going to consider what to think about ourselves, not to think too much, not to think too little. Okay? So first of all, the question of infection, I'll read those verses first, beginning in verse 10 of Haggai chapter 2. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, this is December 18th, 520 B.C. That, that dating is important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's just two months after the previous message. So God is continuing to follow on with his people. He's not said, go do it, and then he's, he's left the scene again. Secondly, it's going to tie into another book that we'll refer to a little bit later, very closely in date. So the date is important. December 18th, the word came by Haggai the prophet, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Let me throw out a hypothetical. Ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any other kind of food, does that food then become holy? The priest answered rightly from Leviticus chapter 22. They said, no. Then Haggai said, well, if someone who's unclean by contact with a dead body, let's say, touches any one of these things, the bread, the wine, the oil, the stew, does that make the thing unclean? And again, the priest answered, yes, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there, it's unclean. Now, you are not Levitical scholars. You are not um, um, primed in the ins and outs of ceremonial cleanness according to the Old Testament law. And you're wondering, what does all of this have to do with them building this temple? That God wants them to build, and yet he seems to be almost suggesting now they're unsuited for it. What does it have to do? Well, well, let me give you another analogy. I have in my pocket one of the uh, least valuable things um, around today, in this season, flu season, and that is a Kleenex. And not just a Kleenex, because a Kleenex at the right moment, you know, could be very valuable. It could be very important. You, 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 you can probably think of a time where you needed a Kleenex desperately and wish you had one, right? Wish you had a Kleenex. Oh, if I only had a Kleenex. But you don't want this Kleenex, because it's not just a Kleenex. It's a used Kleenex, right? And it's flu season, okay? Now, let me ask you a hypothetical question. How many of you are not sick? You're not sick, you don't have the flu. Show of hands, most of you, a lot of you, great. Did you realize you were sitting next to somebody that didn't raise their hand? <laughs> Thought I'd throw that out there. <laughs> okay. Now, now, then, if you took my Kleenex... If you touched my Kleenex, you would make it clean, right? No, your cleanness, your healthiness does not make my polluted Kleenex clean. But you are not sick. You are healthy. And yet if I touch you with my Kleenex, what happens? The unclean Kleenex would make you unhealthy. The, 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 the health doesn't pass to cancel the germs, but the germs do pass to cancel the healthiness, right? 
There's the illustration. That's what he's talking about here with this image of the priest. And no, relax, I don't have the flu. But I did see some of you scoot a little bit when you saw that the person next to you didn't raise your hand. Because you understand how this works. Yeah, somebody else's thing can pass to me and pollute something outside of them. But I being clean can't make them healthy or ungermy. You get how that works. All right. So he says, so it is with this people. Good doesn't make clean, but unclean spoils the good. And their good is temple building. The unclean is the people's own sin, their own falling short, their own inability to measure up. And there can be this thinking, well, we're pretty good, actually. You know, we dilly-dallied around for a while, but we rolled up our sleeves. We got to work. We started on that temple. God must be so pleased with us. We have earned his favor. No, we can't. We don't earn God's favor by doing something good, even doing something God has told us to do. We don't earn God's favor in that way. God doesn't work on transaction like that. If you'll do for me, then I'll do for you. You do my stuff, and then I'll, then, then I'll be happy with you. Then you'll earn my approval. Then you can come closer. That's not how God works. There's not a transaction. We cannot make ourselves clean by touching that which is good. At the same time, however, we can ruin that which is good if we are unclean, if we are unworthy. And the problem is we are. We understand total depravity, which means sin has affected humanity completely and totally. There's nobody who is not sinful. In fact, it gets worse than that. We are not all alike sinful, but we are all like sinners. And that, that sin has affected not all of us completely and totally to the same extent so that there's nothing good left, but every part of us is in some way tainted. Every part of us is in some way infected. Every part of us is some way turned inward. That's the human reality. That is our fallenness. So then what good can I do when even, you know it was described to me years ago. Uh, a wonderful man of God, elderly man of God put it this way. He said, he said, any reward that I receive when I stand before Jesus. And this guy was my version of a saint. One of, the, one of the holiest, most sincere, godly men I've ever known. He said, if there is any, any reward that I would receive standing before the Lord Jesus, that reward is going to come to me out of God's grace. Because every bit of me is in some way, to some amount, polluted by sin. And everything that I've done, everything that I've touched is impacted by my own sin to the extent that I haven't earned any reward. At the end of the day, I'm simply an unprofitable servant. And yet God would bless me. God would pour out his grace upon me. God would still deign to even give me a reward and say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. How does that happen? How does that work? I know my own sin. I know my, my propensity. And that would easily cause me to say, you know, who am I to build? 
Who am I to participate? Certainly there's somebody better, because I know me better than I know any of you. Isn't that true? That's why we have this problem. We know ourselves better than we know anybody else, so we most easily disqualify ourselves. And when we tend to disqualify somebody else, we're only doing that as some way of trying to make our own selves feel better in comparison. We don't know anybody else's guilt or shame or inner thoughts the way that we know our own. And so we know that God knows it too. So who am I that God would use me? And there we're left. And that's a tough place to be left. And yet that's not a reason not to build. It's not a reason not to build. It is a reason not to act on our sinful propensities, but it is not a reason not to build. God has sent us to build. He said, go, make disciples, in bringing them in, baptizing, building them up, teaching them to follow me. He has sent us to build, and everyone that he forgives and restores, what does he tell them? He says, go and sin no more. So even in the midst of our propensity, he says, don't, don't, don't keep going there. I remember the, the one man that he heals, he said, go and sin no more that a worse thing doesn't befall you because sin does have its consequences in life. And sin, our willful sin, will have its consequences even in our service. But those are not reasons not to serve. They are reasons not to dilly-dally. They are reasons not to play games. They are reasons not to go our own way instead of God's ways. They're not reasons not to serve. We need to be careful there that because of that point that the good doesn't make me clean, that we don't think too much of ourselves. We need to, now the, now the, the last half of this message, 15 to 17, 18 to 19, those two verses, they split up in, in two ways because there's a phrase that says, consider from this day and more, or from this day and beyond. It's a little tricky because it almost, in the ESV it reads from this way onward, and we think the calendar is moving forward in each case. But in one case, he's looking backwards. Look from this time, look backwards from when you weren't building the temple, when you were engaged in your own stuff, and how did that go? And then turn around and look the other direction. Look from this day forward. This is from this day forward what I'm going to do. So in the past, there's consequences of sin in our own way, and then the f- looking forward, there is the promise of grace and God's blessing. Let's look at those two together. So first of all, there's the analogy. There's that question of infection that sets us up. And then these are the points that we want to get from verse 15. Now then, consider from this day onward, or backward even. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple, how did you fare? How did it go for you then? When one came for a heap of 20 majors, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. They're in the midst of restarting. They're in the midst of continuing to walk in God's way instead of their own ways, and yet there's a danger that they won't continue. There's a very specific danger in a couple of directions. First of all, does it really matter? And secondly, who am I? Who are we? Who do we think we are trying to do something as wonderful as this? Those are the two dangers. Those are the two hindrances that could easily get in the way. Can we afford to do this? And yet, 
as they've taken those first steps, as they've just started in these last few months, the danger for them to walk away, the danger for them to withdraw. God says, look back to when you had withdrawn. Look back to before when you went your own way and you spent 15 years doing your own thing. And how did it work for you? How did it go? Short answer, it didn't satisfy You've sown much, but you harvested little. You eat, yet you're not satisfied. You drink, but it doesn't help. You go shopping, you buy clothes, but you're still cold. You're making money, but it's gone to bills even before you get it. You will never be satisfied when neglecting your God-given purpose. God gives us our purpose. Our purpose is in his ways, and that's where our fulfillment will always be found. Never in all the other things that we think will satisfy, that we think will fulfill us. That's what they spent the last 15 years trying, going their own way, doing their own things, building their own houses instead of God's temple, which they were sent for. And it has cost them dearly. They've not, in that futility, they've not found satisfaction because they've neglected God's purposes. But here's the thinking. If we neglected God's purposes... And we found ourselves in this circle of futility. We're never able to fulfill ourselves. We're not finding it. We're trying harder and getting less. That leaves us then abandoning God's purposes, doesn't abandoning God's will, doesn't that leave us unclean and unworthy then to return to God's will? Haven't we just, by continuing our own way, we've continued in sin and disqualified ourselves all the more from what it is that God has called us to do. And here we're stuck. What hope is there? I might as well keep trying to fulfill myself in the things that the world around me offers because I'm not fit to go anywhere further with God. That's what we think. That's what we think, first of all, too much of ourselves in terms of our own being worthy. We cannot make ourselves worthy for this. We cannot make ourselves clean by touching the clean thing. Sure, our guilt can get in the way. Our sin can interrupt the building. But we cannot make ourselves clean and worthy of the building just because we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. It doesn't work that way. The unclean thing doesn't become clean by touching that which is good. Okay. Sin does interrupt. That's what he's saying. Look back and learn this. If you neglect what it is that you were called here for, you will return to the futility that you've been experiencing. Sin will interrupt the building. You're going your own way will interrupt the blessing. Let me give you an example of that. If our temple building is discipling, if our temple building is building up one another up in the faith and following Jesus, let's imagine what that looks like. Let's say it's occurring in a small group. Maybe this is a, a discipleship group of, of, of three or four. Maybe it's a small group of, of six or eight. And within that small group, you are confessing sins to one another and praying for one another. You are strengthening one another in the word. You are holding one another accountable. You're sharing things that are in your life, and you're, you're, you're getting guidance from God's word from one another. But what if you bring the sin of lying and gossip into the midst of that circle? You gossip, let's say. My sin is gossip. Let's say I take the things from, from that group, and I, and I share them elsewhere because there's some good stories that come out of this circle. Or what if I lie within the group about what I, where I'm really at and what I'm really up to because I don't want others to know what will they think of me? Well, 
In those two ways, the sin of gossip, the sin of lying, what has it done? It has ruined the transparency, the vulnerability, the safety, and the fruitfulness of that small group or that discipleship huddle. It's not going to have the fruitfulness that it had before. The growth is not going to occur there because the environment has been polluted by sin, which can be confessed, which can be owned to and forgiven, and then we start walking together again. That's part of the answer that's here. They have owned to their sin of the past, of going their own ways. And they, in the words of Haggai chapter 1, they took God seriously. And they've joined in now to this which God has called them to do. And easily, in confession, we can think too little of ourselves. We can see ourselves as less than, as unworthy Because of the futility that I've pursued, I'm unworthy of God's greater work. We think less of ourselves than we ought to think. I said it was December 18th in this message. What time of the year in the agricultural year is that? Well, they have harvested the wheat and the barley much earlier in the year. And they harvested the summer vegetables and the fruits, the uh, beans and the figs and the pomegranates. And then later on into the fall, they've just completed the, the uh, olive harvest as well. They've pressed the olives for olive oil. And now they have also just planted the wheat and the barley. Well, that's a risk. If you've got an acre of ground, you're going to plant maybe 100 pounds of wheat into the ground in order to get a crop, if you get a crop. Now, if you get a crop, that 100 pounds of seed could yield for you in some of the fertile lands in Israel. You could easily get 10,000 pounds of wheat from the 100 pounds that you sowed. That's why Jesus said, for some, a hundredfold. But if God doesn't bless If God doesn't give the increase, if God doesn't send the early and the later rains, you could get nothing. And that's 100 pounds of wheat that you will not have to feed your family in the midst of the famine. But you went ahead. It was time to plant it, and you put it in the ground. And now it's mid-December. What happens in mid-December? Well, you're not a farmer in Israel. You probably don't know. Now's the time to plant the beans and the veggies. I don't know why. Nobody here is planting beans and veggies this time of year. But in Israel, now's the time to plant the beans and the veggies. It's a milder climate than we have. And so they're planting the beans and the... Well, are they going to plant the beans and the veggies? Are they going to put the bean seed in the ground as well? Or are they going to eat them? What would you do? It's been 15 years of lean harvest. You might need the seed. And what is he telling them to do? Is go ahead and put it in the ground. How is he telling them to do that? Look at verse 18. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day of the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Well, there's not much in the barn. We just planted wheat and barley again. There wasn't much left after we planted. It's going to be another lean and hungry year. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded Nothing. The harvest has been weak in the summer, in the fall, even after they started building. Huh, wait a minute. 
I thought that when they started doing what God wanted them to do, then all of a sudden blessing would come, prosperity would come, the harvest would come in, everything would be wonderful. They have laid the foundation, and then as they finished the harvest, still it yielded little of the consequences from the previous futility. Where's the blessing? That's the way temple building works. We are still living in this brokenness of the fall. We are still rattling around in the collateral damage of humanity's rebellion against God, even though we have been renewed, transformed. We are living in eternal life, already leaning toward eternity, yet in this fallen world. And we're still rattle around in the consequences of the futility. We sometimes plant, we sometimes build, not yet seeing the increase. Children's ministry is like this. Parenting is like this. Now, Julie and I have been here over 14 years now, and one of, one of the things that I, I, I'm enjoying now is seeing the ones that were just little ones when we first came now growing up and now taking their faith on for themselves and owning it for themselves and taking next steps in their faith for themselves, even in the midst of our church. And that's, I love to see that. And yet um, there are others that leave here and go various directions. They're off at school. They're here or there. They, they, their lives start, start and, and continue in other places. And we don't know what's going on with them. And so it is with children's ministry. You might pour into them over several years, and yet you don't really see the fruit of it. So it is with parenting ministry. You will pour into them over 18, 24, who knows how many years. And now and again, along the way, into the future, you begin to get glimpses of how God used and grew that which you invested but it's a long game, isn't it? That's what God is into in this temple building. God is in the long game. And we plant not yet seen the fruit of it. Okay? Some planted, Paul says. Some watered. But God himself is the one who gives the increase. And that takes time. And so we might be between the harvests, so to speak. Here we are in this mist, and we're called to be faithful. We're called to invest. We're told to give ourselves for the sake of others. And yet we wonder, is it going to make any difference? Would God really use me? And we don't necessarily see the outcome yet. And we don't know. And yet God has said, this is my, what, my child, I want you to do. This is your God-given purpose. And so we do it. So we build his house, so we go to, so we bring in, so we build up because this is what God has given us to do, to build his church, to build up his house, to build his temple, whether we see the outcome of it or not. Who am I to build? Why would God use me? Maybe like Peter, you've withdrawn when you should have witnessed. Maybe like Paul, there's a lot of, lot of bad baggage in your background. You don't see how, would, how God would use you, and yet he used him. Maybe not unlike John Mark, there was a time when, when push came to shove, and there was a decision point, and you backed down. And you said, no, I'm not doing this anymore. Would, 
Are you forever sidelined? Would God ever bring you back into his purposes and his work? He did what John Mark said he was profitable for ministry. Maybe God is doing the very same thing today by opening up the book of Haggai chapter 2 today and saying, from this day forward, I will bless you in the midst of my temple building work. You see, if a good work, rolling up our sleeves and doing something good, if that can't make us worthy, then what can? Because we know ourselves, we know what we've been, we know what we've done, we know what we've said, we know what we've thought. How can I be worthy? And the enemy is happy to remind us of that. Let me give you another picture of that that happens just within a couple of months. Within two months of this message, there's another message in the book of Zechariah where Zechariah is given a vision of Joshua, the high priest, the same high priest in this story. Joshua is there standing in the presence of God. Let's look at it. Zechariah chapter 3. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, and the... The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Is not this a stick that I have pulled right out of the fire? This one's not going to burn. This one's not going to be lost. This one I'm going to save and I'm going to take and use for my glorious purposes. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Wait a minute. Joshua's the high priest. Joshua's supposed to have these nice fancy robes and stuff, but Joshua in the Lord's presence is clothed in filthy garments. Joshua, too, maybe has been doing his own stuff, going his own way, and the enemy knows it, and the enemy stands there whispering in his heart and accusing him before God, and God himself says, knock it off. The angel says to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. God is with him. That's what he said to us. I am with you. In the midst of this temple building, I have made you worthy. I have made you clean. You know what our parallel is to Zechariah's vision of Joshua? Our parable of that, which there Zechariah is reminding Joshua of what is true about him. God himself has made him clean. That's what this table is for us. You can build. Not by thinking too highly of yourself that I, I build, I'm earning God's favor, God's approval. But not by thinking too little of myself that God can't use me. Don't tell God what God can't do. God is pleased to pour out his grace where it is least expected and certainly where it's not deserved because that's what makes it grace. And our Joshua moment, our being removed of our filth and our unclean garments, taken away the, the corrupting, polluting, that which would make everything we touch unclean, God takes that away and he clothes us in righteous robes. He puts a turban like a crown upon our head. He clothes us in the very righteousness of Jesus himself. God has made you his own. And that's what this table is to remind us of. That's why we're closing with the table today. Because when our Lord came, 
And when our Lord comes to us, he comes for the purpose of taking we who are unworthy, we who are unclean, we who could rightly say, how could God use me? And he says, just watch this. Just look and see what I'm going to do. The Son of God himself comes from heaven, born of a virgin, laid in a manger, because the Lamb of God will take away the sin of the world, your sin and my sin, and he makes us worthy. So if that's your confidence today, then yes, you can build. If that's your confidence today, then yes, you can go ahead with what, God, what it is that God has set before you to do. You can say, well, I don't know. How, how am I worthy? I'm not worthy in me. But Jesus has made me clean. And therefore, I can give myself to whatever he has set before me, whatever God-given purpose he has given me. I'm going to learn from the past. I'm not going to dilly-dally anymore. I'm going to devote myself to that which matters, that which makes a difference, that which bears fruit. And that is the purpose that God has set into my hands, and that is to go to somebody. That is to help bring somebody into God's family. That is to be building up others in God's family because these are the ways that I will help and be used by God in his work of building this temple that is founded upon this that Jesus has done for you, has done for me. So I invite you, if your faith is in Christ, if you'd say, I'm not worthy, except Jesus died for me. I'm not worthy, except, except God himself gave his son to forgive my sins. If that is your confidence, if that is your prayer, we invite you to share with us in this table. As we pass first the bread, those who are serving come forward. As we pass first the bread, it'll be a remembrance that Jesus came physically in his body given for us. As we take the cup, it'll be a remembering of his blood which was poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. If that is your hope and confidence, then join us at this table as we pass the elements. And join us in this glorious temple-building work that he set into our hands. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a reminder, an object lesson for us, like the vision for Joshua, that you indeed have made us clean through Jesus, our Savior. We thank you, Lord, that that which disqualifies us has been removed. That which qualifies us is Jesus' righteousness itself placed upon us. We thank you for that, Lord. It's in that confidence that we stand. Lord, we don't seek to earn our way by being good before you. But we do, Lord, want to be used by you in the work that you've given us to do. So, Lord, as it is said in your scripture, from this day, we again embrace your forgiveness Father, from this day, we believe you for your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.